Hello, greetings, thanks for your interest in spiritual matters. My name's Ethan and I work with the Venice Church of Christ. We're disciples making disciples in Los Angeles. The word of Yahweh came to Joel in the second chapter of Joel, saying, Blow a trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of Yahweh is coming. It is near, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Like blackness there is spread upon the mountains a great and powerful people. Their like has never been before, nor will be again after them through the years of all generations. Fire devours before them, and behind them a flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, but behind them a desolate wilderness, and nothing escapes them. Their appearance is like the appearance of horses, and like war horses they run, as with the rumbling of chariots they leap on the tops of the mountains, like the crackling of a flame of fire devouring the stubble, like a powerful army drawn up for battle. Before them peoples are in anguish, all faces grow pale. Like warriors they charge, like soldiers they scale the wall. They march each on his way, they do not swerve from their paths. They do not jostle one another, each marches in his path. They burst through the weapons and are not halted. They leap upon the city, they run upon the walls, they climb up into the houses, they enter through the windows like a thief. The earth quakes before them, the heavens tremble, the sun and the moon are darkened, and the stars withdraw their shining. Yahweh utters his voice before his army, for his camp is exceedingly great. He who executes his word is powerful, for the day of Yahweh is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? Yet even now, declares Yahweh, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your gar hearts and not your garments. Return to Yahweh your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for Yahweh your God. Below the trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the people. Consecrate the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children, even nursing infants. Let the bridegroom leave his room, and the bride her chamber. Between the vestibule and the altar, let the priests, the ministers of Yahweh, weep and say, Spare your people, O Yahweh, and make not your heritage a reproach, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, Where is their God? Then Yahweh became jealous for his people and had pity on his people. On his land. Sorry. Yahweh became jealous for his land and had pity on his people. Yahweh answered and said to his people, Behold, I am sending to you grain, wine, and oil, and you will be satisfied, and I will no more make you a reproach among the nations. I will remove the foreigner far from you and drive him into a parched and desolate land, his vanguard into the eastern sea, and his rear guard into the western sea. The stench and foul smell of him will rise, for he has done great things. Fear not, O land, be glad and rejoice, for Yahweh has done great things. Fear not, you beasts of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness are green, the tree bears its fruit, the fig tree and the vine give their full yield. Be glad, O children of Zion, and rejoice in Yahweh your God, for he has given the early rain for your vindication. He has poured down for you abundant rain, the early and the latter rain as before. The threshing floor shall be full of grain, the vat shall overflow with wine and oil, I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the hopper, the destroyer, and the cutter, my great army, which I sent among you. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied, and praise the name of Yahweh your God, who has dealt wondrously with you, and my people shall never again be put to shame. 
You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel, that I am Yahweh your God, and there is none else, and my people shall never again be put to shame. And it shall come to pass afterward, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants on those days I will pour out my spirit. And I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of Yahweh comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of Yahweh shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be those who escape, as Yahweh has said, and among the survivors shall be those whom Yahweh calls. So the word of Yahweh had come to Joel, the son of Pethuel, in Joel 1 and verse 1. We know that he speaks to Judah. We don't know anything else about him or about the time that he prophesied. There's the possibility he prophesied from as early as the beginning of the divided kingdom uh, to the Persian period, from about 900 to 400 B.C. A lot of people tend to favor the latter part of that time, especially because of chapter 3. But there's nothing contextually that really makes it very clear. Joel's great warning in the first chapter of Joel is that an unimaginably vast army of locusts would descend and devastate the land. And the question has been ever since, is he talking about the actual insects, or is he comparing a large Mesopotamian army, say the Assyrians or Babylonians, as if they were uh, an army of locusts? And then Joel 1, 13 through 20, there's this great call for lamentation that goes across the land by the prophet himself about the prospect of this devastating plague, whatever it is. And so we began seeing the continued message here of Joel, that there's a need for a trumpet and alarm to be raised in Jerusalem because the day of Yahweh is at hand. And the day of Yahweh is a day of darkness, gloom, a day that is unlike the days that will come before or after. A day of Yahweh is a formulaic phrase we see throughout the Old Testament. It is a time that Yahweh would visit his people in judgment. As Joel says, Amos testifies as well in Amos 5, 18 through 20. It is not something that you're looking forward to. You do not want to experience a day of Yahweh. It is darkness. It is not light. Then in verses 3 through 10, Joel will describe this army that's coming against Judah. There's a fire before and after them. There's desolation behind them. As horsemen with the noise of chariots, they're marching in perfect formation. They don't retreat. They don't break ranks. They infiltrate everything in People before them are in anguish, and the earth and heavens quake and tremble, and the sun and moon and stars are darkened. In a lot of ways, this sounds like a human army. But in Revelation chapter 9, uh, John envisions something similar that looks like a locust army, described in terms of a locust army. And in Joel 2.25, as as we're going to see, there is this uh, restoration that is promised uh, about, from the great army that Yahweh had sent among them, of the locusts. And so, it might well be a locust army that is described in terms of human army. Uh, the idea that they uh, climb into the houses, entering through windows like a thief, may uh, attest to that. Since we don't know when Joel prophesies, we cannot know which armies have come through and ravaged Judah uh, or not yet, whether the Assyrians have yet to come or have already come, whether the Babylonians have come yet or not, and whether he's using the evocation of the past or warning about the future. Uh, But we can, in, in some respects, we may not have to decide. It's very possible that there were both armies of locusts and a horde of Mesopotamians brought down uh, to cause great devastation in Judah.
And in Joel 2.11, this terrifying statement that Yahweh utters his voice before his army and is strong to execute his word, that the day of Yahweh is terrible. Who can endure it? It's a rhetorical question to which you don't really want the answer. The answer is not very many. So, Judah is looking at the precipice of this disaster. Looking as if the end is has come. But yet, in verses 12-17, through 17, we see that disaster is not guaranteed. That if Judah would just turn back to Yahweh with fasting and weeping and mourning, tearing their hearts and not their garments, God, Yahweh would relent. He's gracious and merciful, slow to anger. He's full of loving kindness or covenant loyalty. He may even leave a blessing behind. Uh, fasting involves restricting his, a diet. Uh, to tear garments is a sign of weeping and mourning is lamentation. The idea of tearing your hearts and not your garments means that the, the lamentation is not just supposed to be pro forma, not just ceremonial, but deep down that the heart is transformed to turn back to being the kind of people God would have them to be. What's interesting about this God being gracious and merciful, slow to anger and all this, is that it's very formulaic. What we see said in verse 13 is also said in Exodus 34, 6 and 7, Numbers 14, 18, Psalm 145, Jonah 4, 2. This is something that all Israel seems to just know reflexively. Who is Yahweh your God? He is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in chesed, which again is covenant loyalties, loving kindness, uh, and he relents over disaster. And so, uh, we have more language continuing about the need for a fast and an assembly of the people to be called in, uh, in the temple, that everybody comes, uh, that they would be spared. Why should the people of God be a reproach? Why should um, the nations uh, rule over them? Why should they experience this kind of, of devastation? Um, and especially, why would the name of Yahweh thus be impugned among the nations? Which is a very interesting thing, and a, a very prevalent theme throughout, that one of the great appeals that is made is, God, think about how the nations will, will, will honor or, or blaspheme your name based upon what happens here. Uh, it goes all the way back to Exodus 32. Moses says, what will the Egyptians say? Ah, Yahweh brought them out in the wilderness to kill them all. Uh, Psalm 74, the same kind of sentiment is made. And uh, the latter prophets, Ezekiel, uh, will, will spend much time talking about how God's just, okay, going to let his name... Uh, actually, that because of everything that he does, uh, they will know that he is Yahweh. Um, and, and trying to actually explain the terror they're going to experience in terms of the fact that he is making his name holy and keeping it holy. Which would be a terrifying prospect for Israel, since one of its primary arguments is now being used against it. Now in verses 18 through 27, we see that there is relief that Yahweh is jealous for his land, he had compassion on his people, that he would send them food, drink, and oil, he would no longer make them a reproach, he would remove the northern ones and dry them in the sea or barren places, and their stench would rise, in verses 18 through 20. So yes, God relents, but it seems like it came after judgment and devastation. The northern ones could be locusts, but they also could be armies, because the Mesopotamian armies would come from the north. The land should rejoice, the beast should not be afraid, the children of Zion should be glad in their God. He would bring prosperity in terms of the environment. Everything would become more fertile and, and fecund. The, uh, the, the, whatever the locusts had eaten would be restored. They would eat in their land, be plenty, and they would have to be satisfied. They would praise the name of their God, and they would no longer be put to shame. 
in verses 21 through 26, which is a powerful story of restoration. And this is what salvation looks like in the Old Covenant. Uh, so many times we want to spiritualize the Old Covenant and try to make it to be something like we understand the New Covenant. But this is what the good life looks like here, that you have uh, food, you have food in abundance, you have uh, security, you, your enemies are, are, are not successful against you, and, and God is prospering your way, and you have children and grandchildren and all that. So this is a beautiful picture for Judah to remember that even though God does judge and God does chasten, that God also will restore. At this point, Judah would know that Yahweh is in the midst of Israel and there is none else and that his people would not be put to shame in verse 27. And this kind of rounds out this whole section and this whole theme. Beginning in verse 28, which is interesting because in the Hebrew, the way that the Masoretic text is, is chaptered, Joel 2, 20-32 is actually its own chapter. It's Joel chapter 3, 1-5. through 5. And then what we consider chapter uh, 3 is actually chapter 4 in the Hebrew. So actually, this is considered its own section, but of course it flows from everything else. That it will come to pass afterwards. So after there's this moment of restoration, uh, that he would pour out his spirit on all flesh. Their sons and daughters would prophesy, old men would dream, young men would see visions, and slaves would even receive the spirit of God that's been outpoured. This is a very powerful promise. The spirit of Yahweh had come to certain prophets throughout the days of Israel, but it had not come upon all the people. In Numbers chapter 11, uh, we find out that there's two men in the camp, uh, Eldad and Medad, and they were prophesying. And Joshua's asking Moses what to do about that, if they're supposed to stop them. And Moses is like, no, please don't stop them. And, and, and had this desire, would that God pour out his spirit upon all of his people? And so that promise that Moses was looking forward to had not been fulfilled. But now Joel says, no, a day is going to come to pass when this will actually happen. And on that day, there'll be wonders and signs in the heavens and on earth, blood, fire, pillars of smoke. The sun will be dark and the moon will be turned to blood before this great and terrible day of Yahweh would come. So remember, there's already the day of Yahweh warned about this. Therefore, be another day of Yahweh. And it's a very dramatic apocalyptic language. Uh, we know a lot in our in the denominational world, in the world of Christendom, that expect a somewhat literal fulfillment and expect there to be this day where you have this darkening and, and all of these signs take place. But it's a prophetic trope that's used to describe the transitions of kingdoms. We see the same type of thing used in Isaiah 13 uh, when Babylon is humiliated, in chapter 34 as well. Uh, in Acts 2, we'll talk more about how Peter talks about how the day of Pentecost is a fulfillment of this. Uh, we see there's a one inconsistent message throughout here, that there's going to be this great transition in power and in kingdom, and God's spirit will then be poured out upon his people. And this is taking place centering around the death and resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth, also his ascension and his lordship, uh, when the Satan is ultimately defeated and, and the great victory is won. And uh, God's purposes have been fulfilled in Jesus. And on that day, Joel envisioned in verse 32 that all who called upon the name of Yahweh would be delivered. And there would be a remnant of those who escaped devastation who would dwell in Zion, those whom Yahweh had called. We'd mentioned how Peter had spoken about the fulfillment of what Joel said. And he quotes Joel at length from chapter 2, verse 28, until 
about the middle of verse 32, that right after, and it shall come to pass, everyone calls upon the name of Yahweh shall be saved. That's where Peter ends his quotation. And doesn't have that last sentence in there about the remnant that would escape. And um, there, there's a reason for that branching off. Uh, Paul, Peter does believe in remnant theology, that you know, there's going to be a remnant of God's people saved. Uh, but for his, his, his purposes in the rhetoric, it's that emphasis that those who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Uh, so salvation comes to those who call upon the name of the Lord. In Acts 22, verse 16, we see how Ananias told uh, Saul that he would uh, be calling on the name of the Lord through baptism, that he would be, he would be baptized for the mission of sin. That's how he would be making that particular petition. So for Judah, the hope would be this remnant that lived in Jerusalem, that there would still be Israelites there. But in Christ, the hope is that we will be the remnant of the people of God among whom he dwells. And who, with whom there's this relational unity there between God and his people. And so this is how Joel warned and encouraged Judah. So what are we supposed to take from this uh, to gain for our faith? Well, the main premise is the day of Yahweh. We see it in the beginning. We see it even in this um, uh, prophecy of what is to come. The day of Yahweh is not pleasant. It involves devastation. It involves destruction. It doesn't necessarily appear to have supernatural origin. I mean, if you had a horde of locusts show up, you could probably attempt to explain that scientifically, uh, climatologically, uh, based upon various patterns and habits. Um it could, when the armies of the Assyrians come, you could explain them purely in terms of social political forces. Uh, and yet, it's God's work throughout. And this is the way it goes with days of Yahweh. God brings devastation and ruin on a nation through somewhat natural or artificial means in terms of bringing forth plague, bringing forth pestilence, bringing forth foreign armies, uh, looking for plunder and for conquest. But God's directing it all the same. And Israel experienced a lot of days Yahweh. Uh, Israel in the northern kingdom experienced one in 722 when the Assyrians carted off the rest of Israel and destroyed Samaria. Uh, in a very real way, Judah would experience it in 701 at the hands of Sennacherib where everything was almost lost. And then in 586 again, when everything was lost at the hands of the Babylonians. It's hard not to see what Antiochus did in 167 uh, as a day of Yahweh. Uh, and, of course, the day of Yahweh that would come in 70, when this temple would again be destroyed and Israel left spiritually homeless until the present day, save for finding hope in their Messiah who has come, Jesus of Nazareth. And it might well be that nations endure days of Yahweh to this day. Uh, we have every reason to believe that God is still active in the affairs of men. Uh, that what we look at and explain entirely in terms of social, political, and economic phenomena might also have a divine direction to it, which we may not be easily able to easily discern. Uh, but as Christians, we're waiting for the final and ultimate day of Yahweh, the day when Jesus returns to judge the living and the dead. And the message that we have throughout in Matthew 24 and 25, Acts 17, Romans 2, Romans 14, 2 Thessalonians, is that we need to live as if that day could be today or any day. Live as if prepared to be the good and faithful servant, uh, prioritizing the things God would have us to prioritize and to do his purposes. And to always be ready in case we stand before him at any time. In 
in the midst of this prophecy of Joel, warning about the day of Yahweh, a lot of people have this idea that prophecy is static, firm, and fixed. But the prophets make it very clear that it doesn't have to be that way. Joel says these things, just like all the prophets have made these warnings of devastation and death, to get Israel and or Judah to stop what they're doing, to turn back to God, and then God won't bring that disaster upon them. It's a warning designed to change this, so that we the devastation doesn't have to come. The day of Yahweh proves unnecessary. As Joel says, God would much rather shelve his plans of doom and gloom if only his people would turn and listen. Unfortunately, they rarely did. And it's a very important thing to this day. We may not prophesy the way they did, but the proclamation of the gospel message is still intended to warn people about their fate and that that warning would encourage them to consider their lives and to change their lives so that they would not endure that fate. That's why Paul, every time he's preaching to Gentiles, warns about judgment. The day of judgment is coming. You've got to be prepared for uh, that. You're going to have to give an account for the things that you have done. And so that's why we talk about the need to turn, the need of repentance, to change the heart and mind, to turn back to God so that you don't experience disaster when he comes again. God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, despite common assumptions. He would rather have everybody turn from their evil and come to a knowledge of the truth and be saved. Anybody and everybody can escape doom if they would only turn to God. In 1 Timothy 2.4, 2 Peter 3.9. And that's a, a message that we clearly need to get out very clearly. That any doom and gloom that is preached is not for the sake of doom and gloom, but the sake to recognize this doesn't have to be your fate, my fate, or any of ours' fate. This is why we need to turn back and follow God. For Christians, though, the primary powerful passage of Joel 2 is Joel 2, 28-32. And Simon Peter, on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, declared that what Israel was seeing on the day of Pentecost is what Joel had spoken of here in Joel 2, 28-32. That in Christ, God has poured out his Spirit on his people. And Peter leaves no doubt about the fulfillment. Some are trying to say that, well, only some of it happened then. It's gonna, some of it's going to happen later. No, Peter said, this is what was said by the prophet Joel. And then he went and quoted him. He didn't just quote about the Spirit pouring out. He even quoted about all the signs on the earth going on, which reinforces that those signs are this kind of prophetic uh, apocalyptic language that's trying to denote the transition in kingdom. And, of course, no greater transition took place than the one that happened uh, when Jesus died, was raised in power, ascended to the Father, and was uh, made Lord of all. And now the pouring out of the Spirit is a demonstration of what Joel said. Now, this pouring out is definitely seen very vividly in the baptism of the Spirit that's given to the apostles here on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2, and also given to Cornelius and his associates in Acts chapter 10. And these are two very unique and specific moments where God fulfills his promises, and it hasn't happened in that way again. It was designed for his specific purposes in those two instances to pour out the Spirit in that way. Um, the specifics of what is going on here in this prophecy about sons and daughters prophesying, old men dreaming, young men seeing visions, and female and male slaves uh, having the Spirit poured out on them is seen when the apostles lay on their hands on, on Christians in Acts 8, 
since and 19, and they were able to prophesy, they would see visions and dreams and things of that nature. These specific prophesied capabilities fulfilled their purpose in the generation of the apostles and immediately afterward. They did not continue. We have the evidence of that and the witness of all of that in Scripture, from which we can gain continual encouragement, edification from those prophesied messages. And yet, in Acts 2.39, there's this expectation that the gift of the Holy Spirit would continue uh, for all generations, that indeed God does continue to pour out his Spirit upon his people, that all who are baptized into Christ are baptized into one body in the Spirit in 1 Corinthians 12.13, that Christians are given the Spirit as a down payment of salvation in 2 Corinthians 5.5 5 and Ephesians 1.13, and that Christians, individually and collectively, are reckoned as temples of God because the Spirit of God dwells in them in 1 Corinthians 3.16 and 17 and 6.19 and 20. And this is a hallmark of the contrast of the old versus the new, which we can see uh, very vividly uh, as Paul declares it in 2 Corinthians, the third chapter, where Paul compares and contrasts the ministry of the Spirit and the ministry of Moses. Um, that you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone but on the tablets of human hearts. Such is a confidence that we have through Christ toward God, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who made us com competent to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Now, if the ministry of death, carved in letters of stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses, who put on a veil over his face so the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome that was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is a spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed in the same image from one glory, degree of glory excuse me, to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So what Paul is looking at here is not the mere transmission of information, which unfortunately so many of our discussions, disputes, and arguments about the outpouring of the Spirit comes down to. Uh, the prophesying, the speaking in tongues, and things of that nature, this visions and dreams. Hey, is this, this has kind of energized the modern Pentecostal movement who believe there's this kind of latter rain where this is coming again. Um, and so many of our ways of looking at this outpouring of the Spirit is really an attempt to argue the Pentecostals to say, no, uh, that's not how this works. But in so doing, we sometimes miss that the whole contrast in many respects between old and new is the presence of the Spirit of God, where God's presence in Israel was in the temple, in this one fixed place you had to all go to it. And now the presence of God is among his people through the Spirit. And as Paul is talking about, it's a, it's a transformation uh, of glory to become more like God, to, to be able to look at God as with unveiled face. Um, because we're being transformed uh, to be manifesting the fruit of the Spirit. 
And this transformation is not somehow independent of our individual actions or obedience. Um, but it certainly cannot be based only on our obedience, as if we have enough strength uh, within ourselves to be able to do this. It is being empowered by God if we have put our trust in Him. It is not being done against our will, but it has to be. we have to submit our will to God. And not only is this something demonstrating the old to the new, and of course that's the whole great promise here that Joel is giving. Look, uh, this Spirit's going to be outpoured. The whole point of saying all these people are going to have the Spirit outpoured is indicating the fundamental equality that's going on here. As we see in Galatians 3.28, Colossians 3.11, that uh, God is no longer a respecter of persons. If you ever was, now he's a respecter of persons. Now he's going to be able to uh, bring everybody into the fold. Anybody can become a follower of Christ. Anybody can uh, participate in this ministry leading to righteousness. Anybody can receive uh, the Spirit of God uh, the way that has been discussed um, because uh, God is bringing everybody in and everybody has value in his kingdom. They have different roles, they have different responsibilities, but everybody stands equally in the kingdom. And so it's interesting that all of what Moses had desired to see for Israel is embodied in Christians. They're a holy priesthood. They are a people for God's possession. And they are filled with his spirit. And that's a powerful thing. And that's what Joel's trying to point out. And that's what Peter's saying is happening in the people of God. And therefore, may we all call upon the name of God in Christ. May all of us obtain salvation in him, and may we all receive of his spirit. We're again so glad that you've joined us. We hope that you've uh, been benefited by our, our conversation here. Please, if you if you have, uh, we'd love for you to subscribe to our podcast. Um, we're on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, many other venues. Uh, please share it with uh, friends and family and others on social media. If you'd like to discuss anything we've talked about further, if you'd like to argue about anything we've talked about, if you'd like to have a prayer request, like to learn more about us, you'd like to come check us out, please find us online at venicechurchofchrist.org. We're also on social media. If I can be of any service, you'd like to reach out to me, you can reach me at my website at deverbovitae.com. That's www.deverbovitae.com. I again thank you. Have a good day.